What do you say to teachers that say, oh, I don't have time for this. I have too many other things I've got to do. So I would just say that modeling is essential. And as an educator, if we don't embrace modeling in the moment and teaching by doing, it's going to be really hard to convince the kids to dig in deep to our learning, right? Welcome to the Moments for Myself podcast. I'm your host, Virginia. And in today's episode, we're focused on self-management. We're speaking with Wendy Turner, self-described SEL warrior who teaches second grade at Mount Pleasant Elementary in Wilmington, Delaware, and was the Delaware Teacher of the Year in 2017. Afterwards, if you want something hands-on for your students or kids to practice self-management, check out our Moments for Myself workbook published by McGraw-Hill at momentsformyself.com. Let's begin with the definition of self-management from CASEL, the organization that helps make SEL an integral part of K-12 education. Self-management is the ability to manage one's emotions, thoughts, and behaviors effectively in different situations and to achieve goals and aspirations. Now, let's talk to Wendy. So, Wendy, what does self-management mean to you? So, self-management to me is really everything for adults in the classroom. It is, um, once we notice our thoughts, feelings, and actions, it is taking care of those thoughts, feelings, and actions. It is noticing what we're doing and then managing ourselves in a myriad of situations. You know, educators have to make um, hundreds of decisions a day. They call them like micro decisions. And so you're constantly noticing what you're thinking and doing and then trying to assess really quickly as you pivot in a lesson, as you work to help a child who's struggling with um, behavior. And to be honest, you know, we're in our third year of pandemic teaching. I'm constantly assessing how I'm doing because you know, some days I'm struggling more than I did a few years ago because of everything that's happened um, with COVID-19. And so it's really being very, very aware of your thoughts, feelings, and actions, and then trying to manage them in the moment based on what the moment demands. Yeah. So you kind of touched on this when you referenced all of the hundreds of things that teachers have to do throughout the day. What do you say to teachers that say, oh, I don't have time for this. I have too many other things I've got to do. Yeah. So I would just say that modeling is essential. Modeling is essential. And as an educator, if we don't embrace modeling in the moment and teaching by doing, it's going to be really hard to convince the kids to dig in deep to our learning, right? Because I can't say, I need you to manage yourselves. I need you to notice your emotions and then be able to handle yourself and engage in calming strategies so you can learn. If I don't do it, how ridiculous would that be? So I think there's a really strong argument for it in education. Um, You know, I teach second grade, so I teach seven and eight-year-olds. They're literally watching me every second. They're watching how I treat other educators who come into my room, how I treat support staff in our school, um, how I engage with parents. They're noticing everything. So um, the best kind of teaching for them is going to be watching me do it in real time. So I think that that's a powerful case for educators. It does not mean it's easy. Um, For myself, you know, I really almost have to set like mini goals to advance strategies that I want to engage in that help my management. I'll give you an example. So, you know, negative thoughts are um, a real thing in everybody's lives. We have negative thoughts. We're actually, our brains are hardwired to notice negative things more than positive things. And that goes way back through evolution. So, you know what I'm talking about. You have a day, 10 things happen, none of them are good, one's bad. And all you can think about on the way home is that one bad thing that happened. So a strategy that I really, really love, and I've made part of my life now is reframing. So reframing is when you take a thought or a situation and you notice it, but you just look at it with a little bit of a different lens. It's not 
um, we're going to rainbow and unicorn this. It's not like everything is great. You know, even when it's hard, it's taking that thought of that situation, seeing it from another angle. And I actually work on this with my students. I teach them how to reframe thoughts as well. Yeah. I was going to ask you if there are some specific examples you can offer. Um, so like reframing, you know, when schools closed and teachers were home, we, we could reframe, look at that situation and say, okay, well, this is really hard, but I'm going to reframe it and say, you know, I don't have a commute right now. Um, I'm learning new technology right now. All the adults are working together as a team because we want to make things as good as possible for our students and families. So there were some really good things that came out of it. For the kids, you might say something like, okay, um, it's raining today. We can't go out for recess. And everyone's like, ah, you know, they're miserable. But then you say, well, let's think about this. Let's reframe. Plants and flowers and trees need water. Okay, it's raining. It's been dry out. You might get an opportunity to try a new activity in class with someone different. You might get to um, have a different experience you weren't thinking about that might be really positive. And you kind of, when you say it that way and you show the kids what it looks like, they kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. I could reframe that and take something positive out of it. Um, Same thing with emotions. You know, I engage in emotional language with my students from the very first week of school. What emotions are you feeling? What does your body feel like when these emotions start to emerge? And I asked them to share their emotions with me uh, by wearing like a little rubber bracelet with a color on it. And I wear a bracelet too. So if I'm on green, they can see it. But if I'm not, if I'm not feeling great and I put on a yellow bracelet, they can see that I have a yellow one on. They might be putting on a yellow one or a red one. So again, I'm modeling um, all those things. And we teach kids, you know, if you look at the hand seedle, the hand model developed by Dr. Dan Siegel, it talks about flipping your lid, like when you get upset. So I always tell them, you know, you're going to flip your lid model goes up like this. That means you've lost your cool, you're upset, and you're going to find a calming strategy to get back to your learning brain. So we need you to learn. I'm going to flip my lid. So if I actually flip my lid in front of my kids, I say, I'm flipping my lid right now. I'm going to uh, go to the calm down corner. I need a moment. Or if I flip my lid and I, you know, maybe raise my voice or something, I just apologize. I legit apologize right after to model that um, kind of flexibility and grace that we all need when we're dealing with emotions, especially in our third year of pandemic teaching with COVID-19. Yeah, so you've brought up the pandemic and we definitely have to touch on that. I know McGraw-Hill just did a survey of administrators, teachers, and parents, and all three of those groups have a higher awareness of social and emotional learning and or a stronger desire to see it taught in schools compared to three years ago, largely because of the pandemic and how it's affected students. So can you talk about what you've noticed about how the pandemic has affected um, the self-management skills of students? Yeah, I mean, it's brought the the conversation about those skills to the forefront. I think people have always known that social emotional learning is important, but they've struggled to like say exactly what it is. I love the castle competency model because it's a really clear way to define it. You you know what these five things are, you know what social emotional learning is. So um, I see students, you know, I teach in a large elementary school with over 700 students. We're seeing students with, you know, higher levels of anxiety and worry. We're seeing students have fewer self-regulation skills because they've been at home for maybe up to 18 months. So coming back into school and dealing with the noise, many people around them, um, the structure, it's a real struggle to come back to that. So we're just seeing a greater need um, to develop those skills really explicitly. So when I teach the kids um, the different skills, I actually show them the castle model and I say like, okay, we're going to be talking about responsible decision-making today or Recently, we did a math lesson where we went outside and we were measuring things on the playground because we were working on measurement and math and the kids had big yardsticks. And so I put up on the um, board before we went out, these are the SEL skills you're going to work on. You're going to work on managing your body. 
You're going to work on partners uh, and conversation skills, relationship skills, because you have a partner. You're going to work on staying on task and you're going to have to make responsible decisions about how you carry a yardstick around the yard and you're measuring items with it. And so I had like the math skills on one side of the board and then SEL skills. So showing them clearly that we're in everything we do, really, we're working on SEL skills. Um, so that makes it that makes it apparent and powerful. I think a piece missing from our educator, education uh, preparation programs is the explicit SEL teaching and then the integration piece, because it's one thing to know and understand the competency model, but the integration piece is different and it's necessary for all ages. Um, so I think that's really critical. We have to show people how to, how to do that. People don't necessarily know how to do that. Um, and it's not their fault. You know, we need to have experts come in. I think SEL coaches would be a really valuable addition to district and school structures. And I don't know if there's many of those out there as well. Yeah, I don't know. There probably will be more though, I bet over the next year or so. (laughs) I hope. Yeah, I hope. So let me ask you when teaching self-management, have you ever noticed any kind of red flags with any of your students that others could benefit from hearing about? No, I think they're, the, the students are very, especially at this age, they're very open and they love learning new things. So if I teach them in order to teach self-management, I think you have to teach some science lessons on the brain. You have to teach them how the brain works. You have to teach them which part of the brain is part of your emotional response. That's the amygdala. I have students draw a model of the brain. Um, I then have the students do, um, they make this little flip chart, like how, how do you feel when you're uh, regulated? How do you feel when you're about to get upset? And how do you feel when you're upset? So they can recognize those body sensations. I want to increase their emotional language beyond happy sad, mad, worried. We can feel frustrated, embarrassed. So that language, um, no, they're very open to it and they will share openly, I think because of their age and um, in communicating with parents, you know, I have a weekly newsletter with my parents and I share what we do um, around SEL as well as academics. And the parents are also very open to it because they can continue the conversation at home and they're trying to help their kids manage themselves at home as well. So that's another key piece of the puzzle, I think, for me, is that communication with home. Well, since you brought up parents, are there any specific examples you can offer to parents for what they can do at home to help instill self-management, even if it's something you haven't shared with your current parents yet, but just something any parent can try? So I think using common language is really powerful. So again, I mentioned the hand model of the brain by Dr. Dan Siegel, and you can Google that. And the hand model of the brain um, uses your hand almost like a fist and your thumb is the amygdala to show a regulated brain. And when you get upset, your fingers fly up like the lids popping off a pot and that's your um, that's your dysregulated brain. We call the learning brain, the upstairs brain because you're accessing the cerebrum which is the top of your head, the upstairs part of your brain. And when you're um, dysregulated, that's called being in your downstairs brain. And that's where you're in the fight, flight or freeze response part of your brain which is like your brainstem which handles like your breathing and all those digestion blood flow movements you don't think about. So when you're in that part of your brain, you can't think rationally and learn. Think about when you see a bear in the woods, you run. You don't think, oh, there's a bear. What kind of bear is it? Is it brown? Is it black? Is it friendly? Is it going to hurt me? You just go into that fight, flight, or freeze part of your brain. So I think that um, common language. So I use the language of um, upstairs brain, downstairs brain, or um, I'm on like I'm in my learning brain or lid flipped. And I, I teach the parents that. And if a parent contacts me and says, you know, my son or daughter like comes home and they really are struggling and they, they seem angry. And I said, there's a normal letdown when you come home from school, especially when kids hold it together all day at school, right? Young children, home is their safe place. So they're going to come home and teenagers right. do too, and just kind of fall apart. If you can use that same language and say, okay, I see you're in your downstairs brain, or I see you flipped your lid. What do you want to do um, to get back to a calm place and, and let the child advocate for themselves and say, well, I really 
need a glass of water and I need to go outside and run around and I'll feel better. And some kids might say, well, I need to color and I'd like to listen to some soft music. We just had um, our first fire drill at school um, and it really triggered a lot of kids who felt very anxious, nervous, and scared. So the first thing I did the next day was sit down and talk about the fire drill, all the emotions that we faced. And then I showed them this big poster. It said 50 ways to get calm. And I said, just take a look at this poster. I said, there's all these ideas here. And um, why don't you think of some things that you like? And I just gave them uh, a worksheet with four boxes. And I said, can you name four things that you can do to get calm? And the kids, I put on soft music and the kids had no idea. And some, you know, one student said listening to nature. Another student said drinking water. Another student said um, hugging my mom. Another student said, I, 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 I like to drink milk. You know, they just knew themselves because we've been talking about this since September, but I thought it was so powerful. And then I, what I did, is I said, can you bring this home and show, you know, you show your adults this. So that was a really good example of, um, just paying attention to that moment where that, uh, worry, right. fear, dysregulation was occurring. And, and they, I said, I can't tell you how to get calm. You have to tell you how to get calm. And then you have to tell your parents what works for you. And then you have to be in charge of that. When you're getting upset, say, I need this. We want to empower kids to be able to manage themselves and know how to do it. We have to teach them explicitly. Yeah, that makes so much sense because consistency, reinforcement, structure, these are all important fundamentals of learning. And so using a consistent language seems like a simple thing parents can do that could have a big impact. Well, and you need a building wide. I'll be honest. You know, if you're looking at a building um, or a district system, you know, in my building, we've got nutrition workers, custodial workers, paraprofessionals, school secretaries, teachers, administrators. If everyone in that building is using that language, you know, you could just have a custodian who may be walking down the hallway, but you see a child in distress and they say, hey, are you in your downstairs brain? How can I help you? That child knows that that what that language means. As kids right. move from classrooms to specials, I think it's absolutely critical in your system to have that uh, training for all uh, you know, personnel who are working with kids and, and to have that common language. It's really important. Yeah, I can see that. So you've mentioned a bunch of things you do in the classroom. If a teacher is listening to this and didn't really know where to start, is there a go-to activity you use that typically works that someone could borrow from you to get going? Um, so I would say just... Um, identify your triggers for dysregulation, okay? What bothers you, frustrates you, annoys you at home or at school? Maybe write down two or three things. So, because when we get dysregulated and we need to manage ourselves, we need to know what dysregulates us, right? So I'd say do that work at home and at school. Come up with a list of two or three things, okay? Those are your triggers. Once you have your triggers, figure out what helps you to feel better, quite simply. Okay, so a lot of people talk about like a meditation practice, a yoga practice. I actually hate yoga and meditation. I am not a fan of yoga too, by the way. And everyone else seems to I love just, it. Everyone loves it. It's I'm very like almost like hyper and active. So it's like too still for me, but I have my own mindfulness practice. I really do. Like I have a quiet cup of coffee in the morning in silence where I set my intention for the day before I'd pick up my email or go work out or anything. I, a lot of times in the car, I open the windows and turn off any music because I just want quiet on the way home after being with humans all day long. So those things make me feel better. Other people maybe doing a formal meditation might make you feel better. Um, also going outside and walking in nature, my, walking my dog, things like that, that makes me feel better. So find your triggers and then name the things that make you feel better. And don't, I, I did a, um, a webinar recently with a, a group in Delaware. And I said, don't let anyone judge your self-care or your self-management strategies. 
And I just want to say that again, don't let anyone judge your self-management strategy. So whatever works for you, you know, what also works for me watching like the British baking show and medical. Dramas. I love the British baking show. Okay. And it's like, I can't cook yeah. or bake. And I watch it. I'm like, right. oh my gosh, I feel so calm and lovely watching this. So figure out what works for you and then set goals around it. Right. Um, even that practice I mentioned about reframing, I used to say, okay, I'm going to reframe once today. Okay. I'm going to reframe at school once. And then once you start doing it, you say, I'm going to reframe, you know, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And then you might say, I'm going to reframe twice at work and twice at home. And once you start doing that and you incrementally increase it, it's going to become part of your practice. So I reframe all the time. Now that is my way of creating more positive thought patterns in my head. I, we have two teenagers. We have a ping pong table. I play ping pong with them. They beat me mercilessly and they make fun of me, but I'm like, I'm reframing. I'm spending time with my team. Exactly. This is a good moment, right? Good. Also, um, there's a lot of, if you look at the Greater Good Science Center, they talk about like the science of happiness. And there's some practices you can engage in that will literally release dopamine and all the other feel-good chemicals. You know, uh, practicing gratitude, noticing and savoring three good things at the end of the day. We do that at my dinner table. We, I have a closing circle in my classroom today. The kids named three good things or we named what went well or we named what we're looking forward to. So engaging in those practices will help you to, to be more positive and it helps you to feel better, but it's work. You know, some people are negative. Some people love negativity. Ne being negative is like their badge, their vest. They're proud of it. That's fine. I don't judge that. Like you have to be, I think, specific and thoughtful and really work on your management practices to make them become part of your life. Yeah, it's interesting listening to you because a couple of years ago, I read some books on forming better habits and there's so much overlap here. Thinking about it, yeah, habit forming is a type of self-management, but I just didn't really put it together formally until listening to you now. And a lot of what you're saying is reminding me of that, like starting small, doing things incrementally and and starting with what works for you and then building from there. You know? Yeah, there was, um, I took part, I, I didn't complete it, but I started the, um, I think it was like the science of happiness class. It's through Yale and you can take it for free online and they call it rewiring, like rewiring exercises. So how do you like change the behavior yeah. you're in right now? And then I think there has to be like 21 touch points to form a habit, that kind of thing. Yeah. Something like that. Yes. Something yes. like that. But for me, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this once. Okay. Now that I'm doing it once, I'm going to do it twice. I'm going to build it up. And literally even my family's like, oh gosh, here comes mom with her positive comments at dinner, but like they know yeah. why we do them and right. they help us stay grounded and together, especially, you know, working through the third year of the pandemic, it's just something we have to do. Um, so I'd say build it with thought and you can do it. You can build up that practice and just start small and do you please just do what works for you. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I feel like I've learned so much. Oh, great. I'm so glad. Yeah. You've been fantastic. And I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else you wanted to say that you feel like you didn't didn't get a chance to say. No, I mean, self-management um, is key because self-management really touches everything because if we don't manage ourselves, we're, so when I train, I train often on the SEL competencies. I always talk about self-awareness and self-management first, because I believe when you have those in place, then you have social awareness and then you add in social awareness, then you can have good relationships and you can make good decisions. So they're really uh, the foundation of SEL. You're not going to be able to make good decisions if you can't manage yourself. You're not going to have good relationships if you don't have social awareness and manage yourself. So I really feel like, and self-management falls in the middle of the self-awareness and the social awareness to me. You've got to identify through self-awareness what's happening. Then managing is making those decisions to you know, work through it and manage it uh, positively. Then you add in that empathy piece for social awareness. 
And then it results in the other two. So it's all really interrelated, but self-management is so, so key. Um, I'd also say, please reach out to me if you need anything. Um, I am on Facebook. I have a Facebook page and I'm on Twitter and I love getting emails from educators around the world and I will answer any question. And I've got a collection of writing that I can share too. So I please do reach out. I'd love to help um, anyone with whatever you need around SEL. That's great. And we'll make sure to include that info in the show notes and on the website for Moments for Myself. So let's wrap up some key points learned today. First, the importance of modeling these self-management skills. Because as Wendy said, the best teaching for her students is watching her do something. Next, the importance of reframing as a self-management strategy, seeing a situation from a slightly different perspective to make the most of it. And it's something you can model for the students like she did with the weather example, something that they can practice themselves, or it's something that you can practice for your own self-management skills. Like she said, once at school, once at home, twice at school, twice at home until it becomes a habit. And lastly, the importance of a consistent language between home and school to help reinforce those self-management skills. And that activity that she described, anyone can easily borrow that for their own classroom. And speaking of activities, if you want something for your students or your kids to practice these self-management skills like setting goals or managing stress, be sure to check out our Moments for Myself workbook at momentsformyself.com. Thanks everyone. And thanks again, Wendy Turner.